The French Revolution, A History, by Thomas Carlyle. Volume 2, The Constitution. Book 5, Parliament First. Chapter 3, Avignon. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Dan. Book 5, Chapter 3, Avignon. But quitting generalities, what strange fact is this in the south-west, towards which the eyes of all men do now, in the end of October, bend themselves? A tragical combustion, long smoking and smouldering unluminous, has now burst into flame there. Hot is that southern Provencal blood. Alas, collisions, as was once said, must occur in a career of freedom. Different directions will produce such. Nay, different velocities in the same direction will. To much that went on there, history, busied elsewhere, would not specially give heed. To troubles of Vouzay, troubles of Nîmes, Protestant and Catholic, Patriot and Aristocrat, to troubles of Marseille, Montpellier, Arier, to aristocrat camp of Jale, that wondrous real imaginary entity now fading pale dim, then always again glowing forth deep-hued in the imagination mainly. Ominous, magical, an aristocrat picture of war done naturally. All this was a tragical, deadly combustion with plot and riot, tumult by night and by day, but a dark combustion, not luminous, not noticed, which now, however, one cannot help noticing. Above all places, the unluminous combustion in Avignon and the Comte Venaissin was fierce. Papal Avignon, with its castle rising sheer over the Rhone stream, beautiful as town with its purple vines and gold-orange groves, why must foolish old rhyming René, the last sovereign of Provence, bequeath it to the Pope and gold tiara, not rather to Louis Eleventh with the leaden virgin in his hatband? For good and for evil. Popes, anti-popes with their pomp, have dwelt in that castle of Avignon, rising sheer over the Rhone stream. There Laura de Sade went to hear Mass, her Petrarch twanging and singing by the fountain of Vaucluse hard by, surely in a most melancholy manner. This was in the old days. And now, in these new days, such issues do come from a squirt of the pen by some foolish rhyming reine. After centuries this is what we have. Jourdain Couptet leading to siege and warfare an army from three to fifteen thousand strong called the Brigands of Avignon, which title they themselves accept with the addition of an epithet, the Brave Brigands of Avignon. It is even so, Jourdain the headsman fled hither from that chalet inquest, from that insurrection of women, and began dealing in madder. But the scene was rife in other than dye-stuffs, so Jourdain shut his madder shop and has risen, for he was the man to do it. The tile-beard of Jourdain is shaven off, his fat visage has got coppered and studded with black carbuncles. The Silenus trunk is swollen with drink and high living, he wears blue national uniform with epaulettes, an enormous sabre, two horse-pistols crossed in his belt, and other two smaller sticking from his pockets. Styles himself general, and is the tyrant of men. Consider this one fact, O reader, and what sort of fact must have preceded it, must accompany it. Such things come of old Rene, and of the question which has arisen whether Avignon cannot now cease wholly to be papal and become French and free. 
For some 25 months the confusion has lasted. Say, three months of arguing, then seven of raging, then finally some 15 months now of fighting and even of hanging. For already in February 1790 the papal aristocrats had set up four gibbets for a sign, but the people rose in June in retributive frenzy and, forcing the public hangman to act, hanged four aristocrats on each papal gibbet a papal harmon. Then were Avignon emigrations, papal aristocrats emigrating over the Rhone River, demission of papal consul, flight, victory, re-entrance of papal legate, truce, and new onslaught and the various turns of war. Petitions there were to National Assembly, congresses of townships, three score and odd townships voting for French reunion and the blessings of liberty, while some twelve of the smaller, manipulated by aristocrats, gave vote the other way, with shrieks and discord, township against township, town against town. Capentra, long jealous of Avignon, is now turned out in open war with it, and Jourdain Couptet, your first general being killed in mutiny, closes his dye shop and does there visibly with siege artillery, above all with bluster and tumult, with the brave brigands of Avignon beleaguer the rival town for two months in the face of the world. Feats were done, doubt it not, far-famed in parish history, but to universal history, unknown. Gibbets we see rise on the one side and on the other, and wretched carcasses swinging there, a dozen in the row, wretched mare of Vesson buried before dead. The fruitful seed-field lie unreaped, the vineyards trampled down, there is red cruelty, madness of universal collar and gall. Havoc and anic everywhere, a combustion most fierce, but unloosened, not to be noticed here. Finally, as we saw on the 14th of September last, the National Constituent Assembly, having sent commissioners and heard them, having heard petitions, held debates, month after month, ever since August 1789, and on the whole spent thirty sittings on this matter, did solemnly decree that Avignon and the Comte were incorporated with France, and His Holiness the Pope should have what indemnity was reasonable. And so hereby all is amnestied and finished? Alas, when madness of choler has gone through the blood of men, and gibbets have swung on this side and on that, what will a parchment decree and Lafayette amnesty do? Oblivious Leith flows not above ground. Papal aristocrats and patriot brigands are still an eye-sorrow to each other, suspected, suspicious in what they do and forbear. The August Constituent Assembly is gone but a fortnight when on Sunday the 16th morning of October 1791 the unquenched combustion suddenly becomes luminous. For anti-constitutional placards are up and the statue of the Virgin is said to have shed tears and grown red. Wherefore, on that morning, Patriot Lescouillet, one of our six leading patriots, having taken counsel with his brethren and General Jourdain, determines on going to church in company with a friend or two, not to hear mass, which he values little, but to meet all the papalists there in a body, nay, to meet that same weeping virgin, for it is the Cordelia's church, and give them a word of admonition. Adventurous errand, which has the fatalist issue. 
what Lescuya's word of ammunition might be, no history records, but the answer to it was a shrieking howl from the aristocrat papal worshippers, many of them women. A thousand voice shriek and menace, which as Lescuya did not fly, became a thousand handed hustle and jostle, a thousand footed kick with tumblings and tramplings, with the pricking of sempstresses, stilettos, scissors and female pointed instruments. Horrible to behold, the ancient dead and Petrarchan Laura sleeping round it there, high altar and burning tapers looking down on it, the virgin quite tearless and of natural stone colour. Lescuya's friends or two rush off like Job's messengers for Jourdain and the national force. But heavy Jourdain will seize the town gates first, does not run treble fast as he might. On arriving at the Cordelia's church, the church is silent, vacant. Lescuya, all alone, lies there, swimming in his blood at the foot of the high altar, pricked with scissors, trodden, massacred, gives one dumb sob and gasps out his miserable life forevermore. Sight to stir the heart of any man, much more of many men, self-styled brigands of Avignon. The corpse of Lescuya, stretched on a bier, the ghastly head girt with laurel, is borne through the streets with many-voiced unmelodious ninia, funeral wail still deeper than it is loud. The copper face of Jordan, of bereft patriotism, has grown black. Patriot municipality dispatches official narrative and tidings to Paris, orders numerous or innumerable arrestments for inquest and perquisition. Aristocrats, male and female, are hailed to the castle, lie crowded in subterranean dungeons there, bemoaned by the hoarse rushing of the Rhone, cut out from help. So lie they, waiting inquest and perquisition. Alas, with a Jourdan headsman for Generalissimo, with his copper face grown black, and armed brigand patriots chanting their ninia, the inquest is likely to be brief. On the next day, and the next, let municipality consent or not, a brigand court-martial establishes itself in the subterranean stories of the castle of Avignon. Brigand executioners with naked sabre waiting at the door for a brigand verdict. Short judgment, no appeal. There is brigand wrath and vengeance, not unrefreshed by brandy. Close by is the dungeon of the glacier or ice tower, there may be deeds done, for which language has no name. Darkness and the shadow of horrid cruelty envelops these castle dungeons, that glacier tower, clear only that many have entered, that few have returned. Jourdain and the brigands, supreme now over municipals, over all authorities, patriot or papal, reign in Avignon, waited on by terror and silence. The result of all which is that on the 15th of November, 1791, we behold friend Damp Martin and subalterns beneath him, and General Choisy above him, with infantry and cavalry and proper cannon carriages rattling in front, with spread banners to the sound of fife and drum, wend in a deliberate, formidable manner towards that sheer castle rock, towards those broad gates of Avignon. Three new National Assembly commissioners following at safe distance in the rear. Avignon, summoned in the name of Assembly and Law, flings its gates wide open. Choisy and the rest, Martin and the Bons Enfants, 
good boys of Beaufremont, so they name these brave constitutional dragoons, known to them of old, do enter amid shouts and scattered flowers. To the joy of all honest persons, to the terror only of Jourdain headsmen and the brigands. Nay, next we behold Carbuncle, Swollen, Jourdain himself show copper face with sabre and four pistols, affecting to talk high, engaging, meanwhile, to surrender the castle that instant. So the Choisy Grenadiers enter with him there. They start and stop, passing that glacier, snuffing its horrible breath. With wild yell, with cries of, Cut the butcher down! And Jourdain has to whisk himself through secret passages and instantaneously vanish. Be the mystery of iniquity laid bare, then. A hundred and thirty corpses of men nay, of women and even children, for the trembling mother, hastily seized, could not leave her infant, lie heaped in that glacier, putrid, under putridities, the horror of the world. For three days there is mournful lifting out and recognition amid the cries and movements of a passionate southern people now kneeling in prayer, now storming in wild pity and rage. Lastly there is solemn sepulture, with muffled drums, religious requiem, and all the people's wail and tears. Their massacred rest now in holy ground, buried in one grave. And Jourdain Couptet? Him also we behold again after a day or two, in flight through the most romantic Petrarchan hill country, vehemently spurring his nag, young Lijonet, a brisk youth of Avignon, with choisy dragoons close in his rear. With such swollen mass of a rider, no nag can run to advantage. The tired nag, spur-driven, does take the river Sorg, but sticks in the middle of it, firm on that chiaro fondo di Sorga, and will proceed no further for spurring. Young Ligeney dashes up, the copper-face menaces and bellows, draws pistol, perhaps even snaps it, is nevertheless seized by the collar, is tied firm, ankles under horse's belly, and ridden back to Avignon, hardly to be saved from massacre on the streets there. Such is the combustion of Avignon and the south-west when it becomes luminous. Long, loud debate is in the august legislative, in the mother society, as to what now shall be done with it. Amnesty, cried eloquent Vernio and all patriots, let there be mutual pardon and repentance, restoration, pacification, and if so might anyhow be, an end, which vote ultimately prevails. So the southwest smoulders and welters again in an amnesty or non-remembrance, which alas cannot but remember no leith flowing above ground. Jourdain himself remains unchanged, gets loose again as one not yet gallows ripe. Nay, as we transiently discern from the distance, is carried in triumph through the cities of the south. What things men carry! With which transient glimpse of a copper-faced portent faring in this manner through the cities of the south, we must quit these regions and let them smoulder. They want not their aristocrats, Proud old nobles, not yet emigrated. Owls, as it chiffon, so in symbolical cant they name that aristocrat secret association. Owls has its pavements piled up by and by into aristocrat barricades, against which Rebecca, the hot clear patriot, must lead Marseille with cannon. 
the bar of iron has not yet risen to the top in the bay of Marseille, neither have these hot sons of the Phocians submitted to be slaves. By clear management and hot instance, Rebecca dissipates that chiffon without bloodshed, restores the pavement of Arles. He sails in coast barks, this Rebecca, scrutinising suspicious martello towers with the keen eye of patriotism, marches overland with dispatch, singly or in force, to city after city, dim scouring far and wide, argues, and if it must be, fights. For there is much to do, Jales itself is looking suspicious, so that legislator Fauchet, after debate on it, has to propose commissioners and a camp on the plain of Beaucaire, with or without result. Of all which, and much else, let us note only this small consequence, that young Barbaru, advocate, town clerk of Marseille, being charged to have these things remedied, arrived at Paris in the month of February, 1792. The beautiful and brave, young Spartan, ripe in energy, not ripe in wisdom, over whose black doom there shall flit nevertheless a certain ruddy fervour, streaks of bright southern tint, not wholly swallowed of death, Note also that the Rolands of Lyon are again in Paris for the second and final time. King's inspectorship is abrogated at Lyon as elsewhere. Roland has his retiring pension to claim, if attainable, has patriot friends to commune with, at lowest has a book to publish. That young Barbaroux and the Rolands came together. That elderly Spartan Roland liked or even loved the young Spartan and was loved by him, one can fancy. And madame, breathe not thou poison breath, evil speech, that soul is taintless, clear as the mirror sea. And yet if they too did look into each other's eyes, and each in silence, in tragical renunciance, did find that the other was all too lovely, on she calls him beautiful as Antonus, he will speak elsewhere of that astonishing woman. A Madame Dudon, or some such name, for Dumont does not recollect quite clearly, gives copious breakfast to the Brissotin deputies and us friends of freedom at her house in the Place Vendôme with temporary celebrity, with graces and wreathed smiles, not without cost. There, amid wide babble and jingle, our plan of legislative debate is settled for the day and much counselling held. Strict Roland is seen there, but does not go often. End of Book 5, Chapter 3